This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. John Steingard is the singer of the band Hawk Nelson, who started out as a Blink-182 style pop punk band at their forming, but eventually moved to more straight ahead contemporary Christian rock and had quite a bit of success. Earlier this year, John made an announcement that made its way around Christian circles that he was no longer a Christian and did not believe in God. I read his viral Instagram post about this and I was very intrigued and thankfully he agreed to talk about it with me. Some theological topics we get into are biblical inerrancy, certainty, open theism, and the problem of suffering and evil. This is the second public episode in the I Don't Believe in That God series. The first was from earlier this year, and the second one went out for patrons only. In these episodes, I talk in detail 
with a non-theist. I hear their stories, I ask clarifying questions, and eventually we figure out what about God we actually agree about, as well as where we ultimately disagree. I love recording these episodes as they put me in a different mental space than most of the other interviews, which I imagine you'll be able to hear in my voice throughout. I do apologize for getting slightly over-caffeinated and probably talking a little too much, uh, mostly in the second half of our conversation, but hopefully that's not, uh, doesn't get in the way too much. Anyway, I had a fantastic time talking with John and I'm stoked for you guys to hear this. John Steingard, thank you so much, man, for uh, agreeing to have this conversation. Dude, of course. Thank you. I guess just a little bit of background here for people. You were the singer, I don't know if the band is still around, but of Hawk Nelson, the the Tooth and Nail BEC band. And you recently released this sort of Instagram post, I guess it was uh, it was like notes on an iPhone, but over Instagram about how you were no longer a Christian and you detailed some of that journey obviously being the singer of a CCM rock band that generated some waves. It was a bit of a new story uh, in that world. And I saw it and I thought, oh, cool, this would be a great example or a great time to do one of these I don't believe in that God episodes where we talk about what particular vision of God you don't believe in. And uh, and we'll through the as we talk, we'll I'll figure out if I believe in that God sure, or not in that version and which parts, you know, whatever. And I just find these conversations to be personally helpful for me as a verbal processor to like figure this stuff out. And I, I think I imagine for listeners for similar reasons. So, yeah, well, you, you touched on something like even just there, you touched on something really interesting, which is that when someone says God, that person usually assumes that the person they're talking to has the same idea of what that word means as they do. Right. But that is not the case. And in right. fact, like wildly not the case is what I'm learning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and this show, I don't know, I guess kind of exists because of that fact, right? There, there's yeah. so much uh, territory to mine because language around, you know, the divine and re- religious language. It, between individual groups, there are these individual language games that often don't cross over with each other at all, but use similar language. And so you get all this kind of disagreement, I guess, and et cetera. I guess where we need to start here is, you know, and I don't think that this is necessarily going to be too complicated. You were the singer in a CCM rock band, basically evangelical, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. most of us can fill in sort of the gaps of like where you started, the kind of God sure. that you had, but maybe anything beyond just that as the basic framework that might help to sort of get us through the story. Certainly. Yeah. Um, So I I grew up in Canada and my dad is a pastor, so that's relevant. And the group of churches I grew up in was actually very charismatic. You know, it was my normal growing up. So I I just thought it was like sort of that's what being a Christian meant. But especially as I got more familiar with different churches in the U.S., I realized that there's the majority of Christian evangelical churches look at the types of churches that I grew up in as like a bunch of crazy people. So, so I mean, like uh, a lot of emphasis on signs and wonders and intercessory prayer, you know, people roaring like lions and crazy stuff happening. So that, that was a factor for me growing up for sure. And, and I've heard it said since, since then I've heard some people describe that like, deconstruction out of that type of a faith has some particular characteristics, it sounds like, uh, because it's so experiential. 
Yeah. That is sort of, you know, like someone has asked me like, oh, is that sort of like Pentecostal? And I was like, it's like Pentecostal on drugs. Okay. Basically. <laughs> okay. So you, you had that, but then I would say that the, the kind of mainstream evangelicalism in which Hawk Nelson sort of lived and moved and had its being is not really like that, right? Like it's, it's Correct. quite Correct. a bit more milk yep. toast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as a Christian band, you, you typically will want to cast as wide a net as possible. So, right. so the more that you can sort of like be a chameleon as far as the expression of your faith, the better. I mean, I remember going to all kinds of different churches over the course of our career. And every single time we showed up to a church, I noticed that they assumed that we believed exactly what they believed, <laughs> including their expression. So yeah. like one church, one church was like, we never have a service without doing an altar call. And they were flabbergasted that we didn't do altar calls at our shows. And they were like, what do you mean you don't do an altar call? That's what you do. And I'm like, well, no, that's what you do. <laughs> um, we had, I guess, succeeded in coming across as sort of being whatever people thought we should be, I guess. It, yeah. So that, that kind of marketing, I don't know, positioning sort of move is effective in that community of like, you know, you're, not, be, yeah. you're not naming records, you know, tongues of fire or what you're not, you're not sort of like slain in the spirit is not the name of the first single from the record Certainly where, not. where you would be not. like, okay, we're going to alienate 85% of, you know, right, our, right, yeah. the churches. Right. So that makes sense. So reading your original post where you kind of came out as uh, non-Christian, the first thing I noticed was just a lot of talk about biblical inerrancy. Yeah, that was kind that was of the, for me. the headline for me was like, if I had to paraphrase and I read it, I don't know, maybe a month ago now, so I could be forgetting it. But if I had to paraphrase your whole post in one sentence, it would be something like, I was raised with a biblical inerrancy God and I reject inerrancy now. Something like that. And then there are you consequences that, of that. That's really, really succinct and accurate. The more I've continued to dive into all this stuff, the more I'm finding that's true. And I mean, and the reason why that was such a linchpin for me is that if the Bible is just a work of human beings and it's not the quote unquote inspired inerrant word of God, then it doesn't have the same kind of authority. And if it doesn't have the same kind of authority, then there's there's nothing that dictates that you have to believe a certain thing or, or live a certain way. It's just at that point, everything's relative now, you know? And so I, I understand why pastors and, and evangelical leaders are very hesitant to give up the idea of inerrancy because everything sort of like becomes this relativistic nightmare if, uh, if you do. You're correct in pinpointing that. That was a, a big one for me. So would it be fair to say that your view, either at that moment or, you know, because that was months ago uh, or yeah, now. Two, and about I, two months ago. And, and I, I listened to uh, the Bad Christian interview that you did, which was quite good. And I'll, I'll put a link to that. We won't double dip a bunch of that story as much as we can avoid that. People can listen to that if they kind of want more of the background and especially some of the like playing in a CCM band, and which is all actually quite interesting stuff. We're yeah, we did end up talking here. mostly about that stuff, I feel like. Yeah, yeah today's going to be like all theology and biblical. Hey, shit. I love it, dude. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, as much as possible. So would you say that basically what these pastors, as you just described it, what they're saying is in, a, is in effect accurate, that either you have this inerrant Bible or actually everything is relative. And so it's not that they're seeing the trade-off wrong. It's that 
they are on the wrong no, side of the trade-off. Right. Okay. They see it. They see it right. I remember having this moment of like, I was in the shower and I was thinking about this stuff. And I had this moment where I asked myself, if the Bible being inerrant, the inerrant word of God, that idea, who benefits from that idea? That's probably an overly accusatory way to word the question. I don't mean it as such because, I mean, lots of people that are on the other side, you know, on the outside of Christianity accuse Christi- Christians of being oppressive or manipulative. And I, that's not the tack I'm interested in, in taking. That's, that's a, that hasn't been my experience. I'm sure it is for some people. But with the whole inerrancy thing, it's like, that's the glue, right? That's, that's the thing that holds everything together. Because it's like, when pastors are hesitant to give up the idea of inerrancy, like, well, of course they are. Because if the Bible's, if the Bible's, you know, not inerrant, then there's nothing to point to when having a conversation about how we're supposed to live our lives. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to reach our first disagreement here, which I'll just note in that I think that the trade-off that you think is accurate for these pastors between inerrancy and everything is relative, I think that that's actually a false trade-off. Please tell me. I'm, I, I would love to hear about that. <laughs> well, first of all, maybe the easiest way in is it's like only applies to a certain kind of Protestantism. So right away, if we consider Catholics, Orthodox in all their flavor, Anglican Episcopals, already we've got other modes of being, uh, actually, or Anabaptists, um, Quakers and stuff who uh, have more of an emphasis on listening to the Spirit, you know, uh, brethren meetings, all that kind of thing. For them, it's it's listening to the Spirit, like at a friend's meeting, You everyone's just silent, and the authority comes kind of probabilistically from the type of things that the spirit leads people to say, nothing ever being completely top down authoritative for Catholics. It's the magisterium and teaching of the Catholic church Mm -hmm. over two centuries for Mm -hmm. Orthodox. It is ecumenical councils up until the great schism between Orthodoxy and Catholicism and for Anglicanism and Episcopals. It's a combination of, you know, the Book of Common Prayer, I guess, sort of historical, similar to Catholicism, but not exactly the same. They don't have the central, they don't have the Pope. So you would, so you would say that in, in those traditions, that the tradition itself is the thing that adheres people rather than Scripture. Well, I guess put it this way, the official stance of the Catholic Church is not that the Bible is inerrant. So right there, mm. you've got 60% of the world's Christians, or something like that. Right there, I, I, I like the Catholics. Yeah, they're well. They're I think they're clearly right. Uh, the <laughs> Catholics believe that the Bible is infallible in matters of faith. That's I think what their phrase is, which basically means everything you need for salvation is in the Bible. The Bible does not get wrong the fundamentals of your relationship with God and what you must okay. do to be saved. Basically, no self-respecting Catholic theologian for 500 years now would have said that the Bible is inerrant in the way that you and I were raised to believe that it was. Well, that's so refreshing. It is. It's totally fucking refreshing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right. So that's my first thought is just that, like, I recognize the trade-off that you're describing because it's the trade-off that it was given to me, but I just think it's a false one. Do you think that the majority of the evangelical, the American evangelical church believes that the Bible is inerrant? Yes, I do think okay. so. Your, your description of the trade-off that you and the pastors agreed on is accurate. Right. Yes, that's correct. Insofar as the people I've been exposed to. Yes. That gotcha. is absolutely what they think they're choosing between. And I'm saying yeah. there are other choices. 
Well, yeah, basically. That, that is most welcome. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I'm glad. To me, this the more obvious point is just let's look at non-Protestants and see what we see. Sure. But let's dive a little deeper because that doesn't sort of solve the problem just because we're noting that there are other traditions. When you say and when you and when you think they're saying everything is relative, can we drill down on can you define that a little bit? What do you mean everything is relative? Sure. Okay, so if you come from a place where you believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, the problem with that is that if you can poke a hole anywhere in it, then you can poke a hole in the whole thing. Because the the whole thing is built on this inspired word of God thing, and the modern evangelical church bases their entire belief system on it, or or, or seems to. Right. You know. Uh, And it's the thing that they point back to whenever there's discussions about morality, whenever there's discussions about how we should live. And so, you know, like, oh, you should do this because the Bible says, oh, you shouldn't do this because the Bible says. Um, And and inerrancy, maybe required is the wrong word, but it certainly seems helpful in making your case if you want to tell someone that they should live a certain way. Saying that God explicitly tells you to do that through the inerrant, you know, his inerrant word in the Bible seems like a pretty strong case. And if you don't have that inerrancy, then then the person you're telling to live a certain way could just say, well, yeah, I mean, like people did that in the Bible, but we don't have to do that now. So let's say the Bible's imperfect. Does that mean that it's just chaos? You know, like, are there not degrees between this thing is perfect in every detail and this is merely a book, meaning it's like yeah. no different than Harry Potter or something like yeah, that. Yeah, no. You know? What's interesting to me is that in the two months since my post, I've actually read the Bible more than I have in years. And I believe because that, I've, yeah. Because what happened for me is I wrote that post and genuinely I thought, okay, now I'm free to just move on with my life. Like that, that is what I thought I was doing. Well, then I discovered very quickly that, that there were things about the beliefs that I held my whole life that were pretty sticky and that I wasn't able to get rid of so easily. And I started asking, okay, so why, why do I feel that way? Why do I feel compelled towards compassion? Why, why do my relationships with people, why do I care about them so deeply? Why do I feel compelled to do good in the world? Where does that come from? And you you know, there's all sorts of philosophical arguments about stuff like that, but I just, on an experiential personal level, I'm, it, it, it kept me very interested. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, okay, so, you know, why do I feel these things? Why do I feel this sense of connection to people and connection to, you know, when I got right down to it, pure like reductive physicalism or naturalism felt like it, it was missing something. Maybe that's the artist in me talking, you know, or maybe that's just the entire lifelong indoctrination of Christianity talking. I don't know, but I couldn't leave it alone. And so I've actually been studying and reading and reading the Bible and reading commentaries on the Bible and reading the history of the Bible and and learning about different early Christian views and and learning about all this stuff the last few months. And I've never been more intrigued by the Bible than I am right now. And, And I've never found the stories so powerful as I do now. It will be interesting if eventually you just become a progressive Christian. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm no pressure. And of course, the purpose of this, I should have said this at the beginning, the purpose of this conversation is not for me to evangelize you to some version of Christianity no, I, I, or anything like that. 
I mean, here's the thing. I'm in a, I'm in a phase where I'm learning so much. I'm like, yeah. I welcome evangelism from any direction. You know, okay. like I did an, I, I did an atheist podcast this morning. And I mean, my perspective right now is like, I, I, I want to talk to anybody. I, I, I want to learn, you know, there's this Buddhist temple in my town that I really want to go and do a meditation at, but you know, coronavirus. So there, yeah, um, I'll have to wait. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's just, there's a lot that I want to investigate and experience. And so I welcome your thoughts. Let me throw out an alternative to everything is relative. So this is a phrase that I like to use that I believe it's not that everything is relative, but it is that it's discernment all the way down. So I was raised, let me explain that a bit. So I was raised with, well, there's some discernment because they baptize children and we baptize adults or, or vice versa. And people have different views on this, but there's bedrock in the following ways, at least. Hmm. And what I've come to believe is that there is no bedrock. I mean, there may, there are facts about the world. For instance, there is some state of affairs. God either is a relational being with love toward me or God is not. It's not both. But I don't ever know for sure that I have identified the answer. So mm-hmm. I will always be discerning what is true. I will never know that I know. And I, and I certainly won't know what's going to happen to me when I die until I die. And then I have no way of communicating that back. So it's I agree with absolutely everything you just said. Okay. So I would like to offer that as a replacement principle. So I think that the pastors are right that they do lose something if they get rid of inerrancy, but they also should get rid of inerrancy because the Bible's not inerrant. And what you end up with is a principle something like it is discernment all the way down. And actually your parishioners, your congregants are going to have to discern whether they should listen to you or not. And you're going to have to discern which commentaries you use when you do your sermon. And you can't just say, well, I went to a Presbyterian seminary, so all the Presbyterian theologians are right. Mm -hmm. That's actually Mm -hmm. lazy. Uh, And you're probably going to learn something from Catholic theologians and from Mm -hmm. Methodists and whatever. And, and it's just, it's just fucking discernment. And that sucks. It's like, I listened to an episode of uh, psychology in Seattle, which is this this podcast by a, a psychologist up where I live. And he answered a listener question about cancel culture. And we do not need to go into this rabbit trail, but he said, look, cancel culture is both good when it happens to Kevin Spacey and Harvey Weinstein and bad when it happens, maybe do Aziz Ansari or uh, local people who get fired from their jobs for something that they posted on Reddit or Twitter. It's just both. We have to discern when and how to use it. I just basically think the whole world is like that. And Christianity often wants to present itself as an exception because that gives us tremendous sense of belonging and, and it reduces our cognitive dissonance and all that. But for those of us willing to look the world straight in the face, actually it's not, it it also requires discernment. So let me, let me ask you then, what is the difference between that and relative? It really depends. So that's why I asked you to define it because there's a way you could mean everything's relative. That would be closer to what, to everything is discernment. But the way that I generally heard it, what it meant when I was taught that phrase growing up was it's actually just pure license and everything is relative means I don't have to be held accountable to any of God's standards because I'll just go with my feelings. That is what mm-hmm. people meant when they said okay. everything is relative out there. So we have the word of God to keep sure. from the chaos of pure freedom. Yeah. Here's how I delineate those two things. I do think everything is relative what you're describing sounds like everything is relative to me. Okay. 
the caveat being actions really do have consequences. And so, so everything is not relative in the sense that like throwing yourself off a bridge is the same as not throwing yourself off a bridge, you know, yeah. like obviously there are consequences associated with one that are not contained in the other. So everything is not the same, but there's no absolute, like if you get rid of uh, inerrancy, then there's no absolute for people to heave upon you. Absolute is um, a good word. I think yeah. it's, I think it's about certainty in on the ground. And there's so, degrees of certainty. I think that on the ground, it's about absolute certainty. I think that's what mm-hmm. it really comes down to for most people when they're having so these conversations. Like, so you probably like Peter Enns then. I love Peter Enns. Yep. So I do was, I. 15 years ago, the big question for me, and you brought this up on the Bad Christian interview, was the Canaanite genocide. So I found Enns pretty early because he was an Old yep. Testament writer, you know, all that. Yeah. Let, let's actually, let's talk about that one as maybe a sure. test case. So. Yep. Here's how I understand the way that you would have run the Canaanite story through your old rubric. Either basically God did in fact command the Israelites to kill every Canaanite man, woman, and child because it says he did. Either that happened or everything is relative, meaning or the Bible does not have anything to say to me or or the Bible is so – maybe this is a kinder way of saying it. The Bible is so self-contradictory that who the hell knows – what I should take from the Bible if the Bible contains things like the Canaanite genocide. I think there's another approach that's available. For a long time, I sort of thought that those were the only two options, which was part of my conundrum, right? It was like, okay, well, right. like if I believe the Bible is inerrant, then I have to believe that God really did command that and that that really happened and that and God wanted that to happen. And what does that say about the nature of God? You know, that's the conundrum. At the time so, of your Instagram post, would you have still that was still what you were operating under, or by then you had actually? I was rejecting. I was re- I was rejecting that at that time. I was saying I'm not. A- I'm no longer able to believe that that there is a God that exists that is all loving that also did that. Great. I'm not willing to uh, believe that. So the other option that I think is available, and it's the one that made me continually really interested in the Bible, is that instead of being the inerrant word of God that God wanted exactly all of these things to play out just like this, and it wanted to be written about just like this so that we could have this book here in 2020. If you look at the Bible as a collection of stories and literature created by humanity in their attempt to explain existence and what they see around them and their relationship with the soil and their relationship with their ancestors and their relationship with their future generations, like them trying to figure that out. The Bible is the story of a group of people trying to ask those hard questions, which incidentally are the same questions we're asking today. So if they were asking the same questions we're asking today, then maybe studying them is meaningful. And the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the fact that it's horrific is because they lived in horrific times, you know? I guess when it comes to the genocide thing specifically, it's like, what makes more sense? That God is all loving, the same God that we hear about in the New Testament, which seems like, he seems like a pretty cool, you know, pretty good God. That same God also commanded all this stuff in the Old Testament. And this is just all his nature. And, you know, we just don't understand it. Do you think that's more likely? Or do you think that, throughout the Bible, 
humanity is trying to constantly understand who and what God is, and they're writing about it. Like, if it seems human and imperfect and contradictory, it's because it's human and imperfect and contradictory. And that doesn't mean we don't have anything to learn from it. Is right. you, I mean, is that, is described, that more or less? That's my view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and I think I mean, Enz's view. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a view that's new to me. It, it feels like a breath of fresh air to think about the Bible that way. And if that view was new to you, I'm sure you can understand why it's very refreshing to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, people ask different questions at different times in their lives. And some of the stuff that you are asking right now is stuff that I've asked previously in my life. That doesn't make yeah. me a better person than you. I'm probably also a little bit older than you. How old are you? I'm 36. 37. Oh, shit. <laughs> so I'm way ahead of you. Yeah. Spiritually ju- and, you know, everything. Yeah. Well, you know, I was, I was, I was, this is the irony of this. Honestly, man, this is so ironic. I truly believe that I would have gone through this process way earlier if I hadn't been in a Christian band for 15 years. Of course, because the incentive structure for your living that you're making is is all yeah. wrong to go through something like this. Whereas yeah. and- I was in even just the difference between you were in a Christian band playing Christian festivals being played on Christian radio. And I was in a general market band that people knew that we were Christians if they bothered. Uh, but actually the Christian bookstores wouldn't take our records because they weren't Christian enough. And we mm. almost signed a tooth and nail, but didn't. That little difference allowed me to just go through all this stuff with no hangups because no, yeah. no part of my uh, living depended on ways that mm-hmm. I answered this question. I had other I had other stuff, you know, personal. It's still it's still very difficult to question one's beliefs. And there's all yeah. kinds of stuff that gets in the way. It's, dis- but, it's very disruptive. But no economic incentives. I didn't have children I needed to feed. I didn't have anything like that. Right. Well, that sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I do. Dude, have a I, went, I, I mean, dude, I went to I mean, I, I started going to therapy. I, Fantastic. Uh, which is amazing, by the way. Best money I've ever and spent. I re- absolutely agree. It's phenomenal. I felt all the pressure of having to figure this out as rapidly as possible once yeah. I started, because I was yeah. like, well, I have, I have kids and I need to, te- I need to know what to teach them about life. That was actually probably the biggest source of pressure for me. Yeah. And it, you know, so I'm actually, we don't know each other. I'm, I'm training to be a psychologist right now. I'm in a grad program. Oh, right on. Yeah. Uh, getting my doctorate in psychology to become a therapist among other things. And nice. That's great, dude. And so I just, I already recognize the difficulty of that position that you were in and it, it's not on you, right? Like everybody finds themselves in every moment in a situation that is some combination of what they were born with, things that happened to them and then decisions that they've made and the consequences of yeah. those. Like mm-hmm. it's a boring thing, but that's literally what explains every single moment for every single yep. person. Two out of three of those are not in your control. Right. Exactly. You do make some decisions, but those are in response to what you've been given and what other people do and, or even yep. just what happens right around you. That's like a recession, which no one in yep. your life caused a recession, but you might be in one and you have to make decisions. Right. So that was a difficult position. I, and I, I noticed that Matt Carter on the Bad Christian interview was really trying to drill down on the psychology of that moment for you, of being mm-hmm. in a place where you can't say anything about this. Like I noticed now that you're doing basically like creative work, like video and, and advertising yeah. stuff, right? I've been doing that for a few years now, yeah. But if you hadn't been doing that, would you have done this either? If you didn't have some other way that you knew in the back of your mind you could make money? Dude, uh, I don't think so. Right. And that's not a, um, a, a knock. That's just how we are. No, no. Right? I, 
when I say I don't think so, it's not because I think that I would have processed this and, and then just lied for yeah, years. Yeah, stifle and years. it, right? It's, Push it down. Yeah, right. it, it's it's that I think I had these inklings for a long time, right? And I didn't let myself entertain them uh, because mm-hmm. because the idea of no longer believing, but having to get up on stage and sing these songs was so horrifying to me because I really I really do value transparency and honesty. You know, we can get Clearly, into the yeah. meta, meta, metaphysics of why, but you know, the, the, the thought of getting up on stage and singing these songs, if I didn't believe them was so awful that, that I don't think I even allowed myself to take a single step that might lead in that direction. And so if I was still, you know, full on with the Christian music thing, I might never have processed this. So I'm really grateful. So something I was going to say for the end, but I'm just going to toss it in now to let it percolate a bit more. Sure. Is it that you stopped believing in God or is it just that you stopped believing in biblical inerrancy? Sure. I think at the beginning it was, I stopped believing in God because there's more than just the biblical inerrancy issue for me. And we can get into what that more is, but I think at the very beginning, like when I posted that thing, it was, I don't believe in God. Yeah. Since then, since then, as I've been thinking about it and learning more and, and sort of looking at life through that lens, I, I find it missing something a little bit. And it's hard to put my finger on. Like when you listen to guys like Sam Harris, I really like a lot about what Sam Harris says, but Sam Harris tries to make an argument for sort of a version of absolute morality based on science. And it's a bit of a leap, you know, and I'm just like, well, you know, um, and maybe this is the artist, you know, side of me, but, but there's something about life and existence and relationships and the sense of connectedness that we all seek as human beings. There's something about that that's mysterious to me and, and, and difficult to put my finger on and naturalism, you know, just pure matter doesn't feel like it quite does it for me. Um, I'd, I'd like to recommend one book to you. And I sure. think this will be the only book that I recommend and, and to listeners too, if they've, if they are re- vibing with some of this and it is called a history of God by Karen Armstrong. I'm in the middle of it right now. You're literally reading it right now. Yep. Look at that. Yeah, It's, it's on my Kindle. I think that um, she is the perfect antidote to Harris on the issue of religion. I think that he mm-hmm. will never have her on to talk about religion because she would so thoroughly kick his ass on it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that I like Harris on politics and social questions. Yes, uh, I agree. E- about a hundred times more than I like him on religion. I just think he sure. fundamentally misunderstands religion. I mean, okay, so I don't want to do this to him because I don't like when people do it to me. But I think that he has a bone to pick with religion that did not start from an intellectual place. Like, I think he has a bone to pick that it, that feels personal to me. Karen Armstrong has said that what she notices – notices in him is a lot is actually islamophobia as the mm. driving motivator not mm. these arguments i don't know if that's true i yeah. haven't read or listened to enough of his stuff i did read the end of faith a long time ago because uh fat mike from the band no effects was like if you read this book i'll read something else and i was like okay i don't, I don't remember what i had him read but uh i i hated the end of faith um, I have since I, I, liked him more on like political. I stuff. don't, I haven't read end of faith, although I've been meaning to, I read letter to a Christian nation, which is much shorter. Sure. And it's, it's devastating. Oh, I'm Dude. sure all that stuff is like uh, uh, totally true, but you can also find plenty of that 
among thoughtful Christian writers about how yes. Americanism and imperialism and militarism, we've tied it all up with Christianity. Yeah. And of course, Jesus of Nazareth well, would be horrified by all that stuff. And like, and, and almost, I'm almost not, like, duh, with that stuff. But I, yeah, I've been out of that world for so long. So, you know. Yeah, it's not hard to to like respond to a letter to a Christian nation and go like, you just proved that there are some awful Christians. Yeah, you didn't. Sure. You didn't prove that there's no God, and you didn't prove that Christianity is false. Not really. You said there's something, but beyond. I, I'd like to get back to your uh, your story here, rather sure. than. Sorry, yeah. No, it's sorry, Robbie. <laughs> I mean, people can form their own opinions of Sam Harris, I guess. But you said there was more to it. So when I read your Instagram post, as I said, it was pretty much biblical inerrancy, and, and it was sort of like. If that falls, here are the consequences, and here's where I'm at with all of that. But you yeah. said there was actually another element, at least. And so I, yeah. I'm curious what that is, because I think that will help, help us get a better sense of what happened. Yeah, I know I'm falling into cliches left and right with this stuff. So just I have to say that out of the gate. But th- the sort of suffering of the world and my more recent experiences with it, not even for myself, honestly, I've I've lived a life remarkably lacking in suffering. So it's not like, oh, I feel like I've suffered and therefore I feel like God's not real. It's that it's that I've seen unbelievable suffering and struggled to reconcile that with the idea of a of an all-powerful, all-loving God. To give you one specific example, I did a documentary film a couple of years ago in Uganda. And I know, again, here's a cliche, white dude goes to Africa and, and has his life totally taken apart by it. But I, I did this documentary on this people group called the Batwa. They're indigenous to this mountain range in southwestern Uganda, which is extremely rural. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. And this mountain range was converted by the Ugandan government into a sanctuary for silverback gorillas who are endangered. Well, what they don't tell you is that there was a people group that was living there, and they pushed them out. Yeah. And this people group had been living off the land for generations. They're one of the oldest documented tribes in Africa. They're pygmies, so they're only about four and a half feet tall. So they're they're visibly different than the rest of the population of Uganda, which makes uh, discrimination much easier. So they basically were pushed out with nowhere to go. They, they had no jobs. They didn't understand the concept of a job. They had no money. They didn't really, they just lived off the land. They didn't even really understand the concept of money. And so they just went wherever they could go, squatting on farmers' fields, trying to make their way in life. And a lot of them died off, but they left a lot of children. Hmm. And so there's hundreds and hundreds of these Batwin children that literally had no one to care for them, nowhere to go. And this pastor named Gerald, who's Ugandan, he started just taking them into their house, into his house. And he started this ministry and started this orphanage, and um, they've you know, got some partners from the U.S. now, and that's who I was going with to do this documentary. But this group is still so unbelievably uh, in just, just abject poverty. And, and I had just recently become a father, and I was seeing kids the same age as my kid, malnourished, not enough people to care for them. So, like, you've got the three-year-olds caring for the two-year-olds. Literally, like a three-year-old basically being a parent to the two-year-old and, you know, kids getting abducted. Most of these children, when they find them, they're in the forest naked and alone. Like they just find them crying in the forest. I mean, you just recently became a dad. Can you imagine your kid just, just being abandoned in the forest? So like this shit is horrifying. Yeah. And I saw it. 
and you can hear about it and you can see photos and you can see videos, but I was there. And I was just like, okay, I was raised to believe that God, the father, you know, what father could see this and be like, yeah, I'm not going to do anything about it. And I know that there's all these explanations in Christianity for this problem. But in, in that moment, in that place, those rationalizations were really unsatisfying to me. Yeah. And I saw that and that, I mean, something big broke for me, right? It just, it broke me. I was like, okay, what makes more sense that God is there. And for some reason he decides not to intervene yet. He's good somehow, or we've just been sort of inventing this idea of God this whole time. And in that moment, that second option started to feel like a better explanation to me. For sure. Uh, I totally hear that. There's a lot of a couple directions to go here. Let, let's talk about suffering. Uh, sure. I am on record as saying that the problem of evil is the number one biggest problem for my remaining a Christian. Yeah. So we don't disagree on that. It is an intellectual problem, but I sort of, I put it in the experiential category for, for, for myself because sure. it didn't become a big problem for me through intellect. It became a problem for me when I was faced with it. Right. Person. Yeah. Although I, I think that the problem of evil is big enough to apply in both, both ways, though. Right? It's both. Yeah. It certainly is both. Yeah. I think it came to me through experience. Uh, it sure. became visceral to me through experience. Yeah. Yeah. I've lived a pretty charmed life. I mean, we, we've had some seasons of, of pretty intense suffering, my wife and I, but uh, nothing, you know, approaching. I mean, those children, they're, you know, many of them, their lives are just going to be ruined. I mean, there's just no. There's no really coming back from that. They well, 50% will... of them don't make it to the age of five. Exactly. And if they do, they're not going to be cognitively, so the, you know, whatever. Right. So the the sort of like suffering is supposed to teach you something argument. Not, like, yeah, I won't teach them anything. Like when someone gives me that one, I just want to punch them right in the face. I think I'm that like, it, I'm like, I get the argument, but like, it's so cold, man. I think that there are, uh, there, there are a lot of different ways to handle the problem of evil and the responses to it. The worst way is to just throw out answers that are actually designed to reduce our own anxiety at the, pro at the possibility yes. that our faith might be wrong. Yes. There are much better, more nuanced ways. And I end up interviewing theologians about this fairly often of like, well, look, there are four or five approaches and you can combine them all. And if you combine them all, they don't totally answer it, but they do. They give possibilities uh, yeah. for how God could still exist. You actually, you mentioned this on the Bad Christian interview that, and you just said here as well, there are two options. Either God decides not to do anything about this, or we've been inventing God. But I actually think that there's a third option that I would ascribe to, which is that God's sure. hands are, are tied in some way. Okay. So, yeah. Explain, explain that one to me. Yeah. And it is not always satisfying because what would be a lot more satisfying would be for God to just swoop in and solve that and to see that and to go glory to God. God solved this problem. Miraculously, but there is a view. There, uh, there is a, a family of views that are related to each other, and they have different, you know, variations. That basically says, "Look, there is something about the project that God has begun in this universe, and either that God has chosen to begun, or perhaps God is necessarily creative. That like God could not not create, and that part of who God is." is that God cannot coerce God's creation because if God did that, it would invalidate the everything good about the whole project. 
Sure. So if you take something like that and you combine it with something like the eschaton, the life to come, where the lion and the lamb lay down together, this is something that Christians proclaim in faith, but of course we can't prove, then you get a picture that's a, a, a bit easier to handle of like, yeah, there is truly not justice in this life. I mean, I think that's like axiomatic. If if someone can't agree with me that this earthly experience is unjust, then I have no interest in talking to them about the problem of evil. Well, then you're, you're going to have a hard time getting on the same page to even begin. Yeah. There's no, come back to me when you recognize that this life is unjust, right? Yeah, and and yeah. basically, if you think this life is just, you end up with a kind of a prosperity gospel mathematical equation thing uh, that I think is just horseshit. So this life is not just, obviously. And so if it's ever going to be just, it's not going to happen here. So that's the first part. So, okay, great. If God makes all things right, it has to happen later, and it happens in a way that I can't envision, which that, that just seems obviously true. It's obviously not going to be something that I can get my head around given my time and place and creatureliness and everything. Most Christians believe that they can be certain about Yeah, I, th I think that's true that. in people in the pews. I would say most theologians would, would not say that they can be certain about that. I, I like them. You need to spend some more time with the theologians <laughs> and less time with the lay Christians, maybe. But anecdotally, yeah. hanging out with liberal Christian theologians is what saved my faith. I mean, that is, that's wow. the answer. Yeah, for Dude, sure. Dude, I mean, whenever I, whenever I'm talking, we're talking about this stuff. If someone says to me, "You know what? I don't know," I find that answer so refreshing. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, because there's so much that we don't know, and yet I'm used to being a part of Christian traditions that claim to know all sorts of things that I don't think we can know. You, you said that maybe my problem's not with God; my problem's with inerrancy. I think my problem's with certainty. Yeah, that might be better. Okay, I, let you me know? let me pull on that thread a little bit here. Uh, just to wrap up what I was saying. So there's some version of, and people disagree, of God's hands are tied. Uh, sure. So for instance, Phil Clayton and Thomas Ord would say that if God ever coerces one of God's creatures, then that invalidates the whole thing. And so God can't. That's literally the name of one of Tom's books is God can't. Because wow. if God did... It's not it, – it's basically free will, free will, but it's more than that. I mean Clayton thinks that if God ever – and you could listen to uh, – I don't remember which of the two interviews of, with him it is, if it's the panentheism and Quakerism one or if it's the wrapping our faith in doubt one. Listeners, somebody will know the answer to this. But he says that if God ever intervenes uh, and breaks the laws of physics in any kind of way that we could discern, then science is all bullshit. Every single scientific finding would have to have a giant asterisk that said, unless God broke the laws of physics this time. And we just, so and if so, does, then we don't know. That, according to that view, miracles are impossible. Certain kinds of miracles. He would just say, we needed to find what we mean. So God would, and, sure. I, and this is my view that God, my current view is that God never breaks the laws of physics. So if that's what we mean by a miracle, then they don't happen. But so if we mean you, by miracle, really unlikely events that include God's, action and luring of people to occasionally happen yeah. that are blessings, then I think miracles happen. It just depends on so, how you define According it. to that view, would you believe in the resurrection? Yeah, the resurrection is tricky and, and really interesting because there are different ways of thinking about it. There, there are like all kinds of complicating factors for the resurrection. Let's talk about this for a minute. We'll get back to the uh, sure. certainty <laughs> thing because no, this is good. So yeah, one yeah. complication is that Dale Martin, the New Testament scholar, 
in his work on Paul says that what Paul says about the risen Christ that he experienced on the road to Damascus is a body made of pneuma, which is the Greek word, which Martin says is basically like electricity, kind of. It's like a body made of electricity is the risen Christ. So when Paul says he appeared to the 12 and then to the 500 and then he also appeared to me, the version of him appearing to me for Paul is like an electricity body. Okay, so that's an issue. So it's not it's not his original Well, body. certainly. I mean, if the resurrected Jesus appears to Paul years later, it's obviously not the same flesh and blood atoms as the body was composed of when Jesus was originally raised from the dead. So if you follow the train of thought, if that's the way Jesus appears to Paul, then are we to say that Jesus appeared differently to the disciples and the 500? Or if it was the same, well, now we've got a complicating factor of what's going on here. So when I think of the resurrection, I prefer to think of it as the resurrection experiences Mm. that basically God is putting a stamp on the founders of Christianity and saying like, yeah, there was really something going on with Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the stamp that says that. Mm. And I'm a bit agnostic about this in terms of language. I just don't know that we can really know what they meant in our putting into our language. We know they had resurrection experiences. It's undeniable. The church started because a bunch of people had resurrection experiences that happened. Mm -hmm. Other weird shit has happened in other religious traditions. That's not enough to say it's true. Right. Right. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. but then the accounts of Jesus's resurrected body also differ. There are differing accounts of how long the resurrected body hung out. I I can't remember which it is, but in one of them, he hangs out for a month. In another Mm -hmm. one, it's like two days. What's up there? The Ascension doesn't make any sense to me if we're supposed to think about it literally because heaven is not above the earth. Well, I was about to say that's the thing that that talks about. I mean, that visual description of him ascending to heaven indicates the three level, the three tiered view. Three tiered cosmos. Yeah, right. Exactly. that, that, That everyone had at the time. Exactly. So they're. So that's a good way of saying, or that's a good example of they're using the language they had, and Mm -hmm. it's very complex. It's discernment to know what that language would mean in today's language. But the last thing I'll say about the resurrection is, if you think that the Godhead is uniquely in Jesus of Nazareth in some way, then raising a body from the dead in that case might not be the same thing as walking on water even. It actually might be much simpler to do. Uh, this is something that uh, some theologians have have said is like, look, if you're dealing with the son of God, what you'd want to call a miracle for me, you might not have to call a miracle for him. And that's mm. a mystery. And we don't really sure. know how all of that works. But there's there are a, a few possible ways out. But I'm sure. also comfortable with, no, Jesus of Nazareth died. I'm comfortable with this personally. Not not everybody is going to be comfortable with it. And I'm not saying that I believe it, but I would. This would not cause me to stop being a Christian if this is what it was. Jesus of Nazareth died. That body died. He was uniquely in touch with God in some way. And God wanted to start Christianity among those followers. And so God gave those people experiences of the risen Christ. Now, in order for someone to have an experience, nothing needs to, nothing has to be somewhere out there in the world, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'd have to start thinking about would God have to break the laws of physics to give people an experience of the risen Christ? Maybe, maybe not. I haven't thought about this, 
I would need to think about it more. My guess would be not because hallucinations happen and are not yeah. a breaking of the laws of physics, you know, but then you know, there's issues there. You don't, yeah. don't want to say they, they just discovered psilocybin probably or whatever, right? Like, I don't know. Kidding. I don't know. But the, but the fact that you yeah. can have a hallucination would mean that it doesn't require the breaking of the laws of physics. Could yeah. God give someone a vision that is, that is functionally like a hallucination, but in a way that God wants them to have, yeah. it doesn't make them crazy. Well, let's, Maybe let's look at it. Let's look at it this way. What has happened more times in history that people had hallucinations or that someone was raised from the dead. Right. So this is where the David Hume thing, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, basically. So if you want to claim to me that the sinew and muscle and blood and whatever of Jesus were raised from the dead, I'm going to say, yeah, that's that's pretty tough to argue for. Um, but as I just the, the reason I complicated was like, well, that's not necessarily what we need to be saying. Uh, right. Revivified corpse is not the only option here like i believe people have mystical experiences all the time and a lot of oh, those people are, certainly do and the, a lot of those I, I believe to be genuine i've had some myself not to the level of experiencing the risen christ in a bodily form but like it's not it's not implausible to me that those mystical experiences can be real and that i don't have to argue for a revivified corpse which would be breaking the laws of physics right so sure Anyway, the answer is unsatisfying on that question. So this came so th- so this uh, this all came out of the problem of evil and, and, and miracles we, basically in response. We, we to took it. a journey. We took a journey. So the problem of evil, your your perspective on that is that there are things that God can't do because it would break what He has set in motion. Or, or I, I find it uh, it would break what He necessarily does as a loving Creator. And gotcha. doesn't even really have a choice about, but some version, the other versions like the Moltmann version would be that God willingly removes control and knowledge of the future in order to, um, Oh, and knowledge including, yeah. So I'm an open theist, so I don't believe that God knows the future. I don't believe the future is knowable entirely in, in all Whoa. specificity. Yeah. So there's that too. Open theism new, helps with the problem of evil as well. Yeah, man. Open theism is great. Water's warm, John. That has so many implications. Sorry, I'm just yeah. absorbing that. Well, let's talk later when you've yeah. done some reading and thinking sure. about open theism. Um, sure. But yeah, there's that's big. And it solves a lot of these classic theism, which is the opposite view of like the omnis, right? Omnipotent, omnipresent, yes, whatever. Yes. That's classic theism. Open theism says some of those are not true or they're not true in the way that we think of them. So God does know everything that can be known, but the future is not among the things that can be known because it hasn't happened yet. It's, it's you, in principle unknowable. But you do believe that God is a person. Uh, I would say God, my belief is that God is at least personal, but more than that. I yeah. don't think it's hard for God to be minimally person-like in the way that we are. I mean, if you, if you try and break down what makes us a person – it's actually hard to know what that is. It's something yeah, about yeah. Okay, continuity so, so of time and let me, intentionality. Let me, say it, I mean, let me say it differently. So you believe that God is someone? No, that would be a re- too reductive. I don't think that's true. So you you believe that it's possible to have a relationship I with do. him? Yeah, but to be clear, that's because I'm a human being. So I experience things relationally. That doesn't mean that everything God creates would experience God relationally, but I'm a human. So I, and I'm a relational being, I'm a social primate and I can experience God. I believe, and I believe I do it. I could be wrong, 
through the capacities I have for relationality. I mean, uh, in fact, I've come full circle on the personal relationship with Jesus Christ language that I was raised with. You rejected rejected it it and then you ended up back. (laughs) Yeah. I I discovered contemplative practice basically in the Catholic tradition and, and then started doing it. And I was like, Oh, I have a personal relationship with God again. Whoops. Yeah. I guess I have to go back on that language. Uh, I have to go back to that language, but in a different, because when I was told that language, my joke is that it just meant, uh, have your quiet times and don't masturbate was personal relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not totally fair. I'm sure some teachers in my life had more nuanced takes, but that was kind of the, that's my joke anyway about it. This week's patron exclusive episode is a very fun episode. My good friend, Lowen Baumgarten pitched me on an episode where he makes the case for living not only in the world, but also being of the world to uh, bastardize that common phrase uh, in Christian circles. He is a uh, basically returned to his childhood Catholicism after we grew up evangelical together, but considers himself much more of a secularist than I am. And he made the argument at the beginning of our chat that I say this podcast is in, is for, you know, non-religious folks or former Christians, but I sure don't talk to them very often. Or make, you know, episodes specifically for those people, uh, which I think is half a fair point and half kind of a joke. Uh, but we did it. We had that conversation. It led to all kinds of interesting rabbit trails and clarifications about my own actual beliefs, the purpose of this show. Lowen was also able to clarify a lot of what he was trying to say and push back against um, as a listener to the show for a while now. We had some drinks. We had a lot of laughs. We found a lot of common ground. It was just a very good, fun conversation. Easily one of my favorite of these patron-exclusive episodes that I've ever done. Um, This is kind of like what these can be at their best. It's like something that doesn't quite make sense on the regular feed, but is really interesting and fun nonetheless. And that's what I aim for. You know, don't always hit it. Uh, But basically, yeah, so if you're a patron, if you join the Patreon campaign, you get two of these a month, these exclusive episodes, as well as access to the Facebook group, which is also for patrons only. Uh, If you want to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash dancoke, or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. There's a link in the show notes, of course, as always. And uh, yeah, so back to the episode. So I want to I want to get back to the certainty thing when you were like, oh, maybe it wasn't inerrancy, but it was certainty. And I I just want to point something out and get you to respond to it. When sure. you were telling these stories of what the pastor would say, you would have them say things like the Bible says the Bible says X. The Bible says Y. Yeah. I actually think I think there's a clue in that statement because I actually think that statement is always false or, or anyway, unless you're just literally reading a verse, you could say, well, the Bible says I can count that I know the number of the hairs on your head. That's accurate right. because the Psalms are a part of the but Bible. Then, but then you that. extrapolate something and then yes. you say the Bible says that, the Bible and that says, extrapolation is not right. strictly speaking true. Yeah. The Bible says premarital sex is sinful. It doesn't actually say that. That's an interpretation of the Bible. And most of what we end up saying the Bible says, if you want to say uh, the Bible says Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. Okay. The Bible does say that. But if you want to say penal substitutionary atonement, 
that the reason that the Bible says the reason that you can be in God's presence is because Jesus paid the debt and you wouldn't have been able to be in God's holy presence without it the washing of his blood. The Bible doesn't say that. And, that is and an interpretation of the Bible. Yes. Yep. And so there something about that phrase the Bible says I think is a clue to some of the stuff that you have been going through. That's interesting. Yeah, I think, I'm looking I think at our. That, I'm looking at the session here, and I have been talking so much more than you for the last like 15 minutes. So I'm going to give no, you some time. No, it's fine. Here. No, it's fine. I'm learning. This is just really interesting. I, I, I think, yeah, I, I, the, the place I find myself right now, and and maybe not, you know, maybe a few years from now I'll be further down this road, and you know, maybe I'll end up back at the personal relationship with Jesus thing again, and I'll be like, oh man, here, here I am. Who knows? And I'm sure you've 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 come across this plenty, but I'm I'm sort of intrigued by the idea of ground of being. Yeah, Paul Tillich's and, phrase, but a lot yeah, of liberal t- theologians, yeah, yeah. And and again, I know I'm I'm knocking on a few cliche doors here uh, by going through this process, but just it's cliche because I'm not the first person to go through this, and I'm not the first person to go through this because there's something to it. And so, there, yeah, I, I was you said that earlier too, and I was like, well, it might just be that we were raised in a very powerful subculture that yeah. was so powerful that it became its own kind of dominant culture that has a, a handful of basically universal failings that we can all talk about now on podcasts. Yeah. And we can, mm-hmm. we didn't have to grow up in the same town to throw out yeah. 25 of these canned phrases. We yeah. all know what they mean. We all know the experience of not being allowed to listen to secular music. We all yeah. know the experience of like, I don't know if you should study philosophy or psychology at a secular university, that kind yep. of anti-intellectualism. Or if you're going to go, if you're going to go to therapy, you need to go to a Christian counselor, yeah, a biblical counselor, a noetic counselor, fill it in. Right. Yeah. We all know that stuff. So it might not be that you're a cliche. It might be that the subculture of evangelicalism is a cliche and leads to predictable outcomes when people start to question some of its tenets. I think that's I would a, agree with that. a better explanation. I would, I would completely agree with that. So ground yeah, of being. Uh, so ground of being is interesting to me because ground how of do you, being. How do you understand that as opposed to a more classic view? A basic way of saying it is that God is that from which everything arises and that which sustains it all. I mean, that's more or less how Tillich describes it, you know. Sure. I haven't read it, right? Tillich in his original. I just re- listened to and read Neither people talking I. about Tillich. Something I think, like that, I think yeah. 90% of people that quote Tillich are quoting people that quote Tillich. He's hard to read. I um, tried. I did try once, yeah. I took a, a brief look and I was like, I'll stick with Peter Rollins, thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, what's interesting to me about that is it, you know, I'm, I'm spending so much time deconstructing, like, do am I struggling with this idea or am I struggling with this word, you know? Or am I struggling with this idea or am I struggling with the idea that's on top of the idea? Right. And so am I struggling with God or am I struggling with the nature of God that I was taught and thinking about God as ground of being is, is much less personal, which I think from my family would be a negative. They wouldn't like that. But for me is, is a positive because I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. It's this mysterious sort of thing. And I can embrace some mystery a little bit more readily than I can embrace like, oh, yeah, no, you have to do all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Something that I say I basically would ascribe to is called panentheism. So oh. if pantheism... Pan- I was going to say, how's that different than pantheism? So pantheism is everything is God. The universe equals God. Panentheism yeah. is 
God equals the universe plus something. Mm. So what what it takes to create a universe, for instance, that nothing is actually outside of God. There There is nothing that is like truly cursed and completely unredeemable. And the physical world is not separate from God. That would sort of explain that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God thing because yeah. he is all, you know. Well, you could interpret that in a kind of in-group, out-group way, which is like nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. <laughs> or you could interpret that more universally. Up, that's how, I think that's how Christians see it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that like any average group, if you just select a group at random, they are going to interpret most of their slogans as only applying to them and not applying to people in the out group. And we are, mm-hmm. we've evolved to be that way. But I yeah. think that God's calling us to transcend that, that part mm-hmm. of our nature. Yeah. Yeah. I think the place that I'm at right now is that I'm really curious about, you know, sort of the nature of who we are and, and why we're here and are we put here by something or someone, or did we just happen the biggest question to, to me is like, well, not the biggest, but certainly the one that I spend a, the most, well, a lot of time on is how should I live my life? Um, and one of the things that feels universally true to me, and I, I can't quite wrap my head around why, is that when you orient your life entirely around yourself, it's very unsatisfying. And when you orient your life in service of something other than you, so whether that's other people directly, whether that's some cause, I mean, for some people, it's like, you know, maybe you started a business and and you really believe in the idea of this business and you're putting, you're directing all of your energy into this idea. It's still directing your energy towards something outside of you. When you do that, it's much easier to find fulfillment and purpose and happiness in life. It's, it's even better when you do that in, in some way that benefits someone other than you. And that just feels universally true to me. That's an experiential thing. I can't like prove it through reason yeah. or logic or anything, but, but I wonder about that reality and I go, what, where does that come from? And if that's true, why is it true? And sometimes I hesitate to say that to some of my Christian friends because they very, very quickly will, you know, go to the explanation that I'm sure you can predict. It's like, well, God created you that way. And, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. But, Okay. <laughs> so my so I want to respond to that by tying together three or four threads that we have already touched on today. Sure. The first is that I think at a certain level what's operating is a kind of conditioning that you were given as a For Christian, sure. which is it's again this either or, it's either inerrancy and certainty in Christianity and all that or everything is relative and it's chaos and whatever. I don't think it's true that non-Christians who are thoughtful all just live their lives for themselves and don't live for other people. I don't think that's true either. And and I push back on that with Christians a lot because yeah. they'll they'll say like, well if you don't believe in God, you know, if if I stop believing in God, like I would just go, you know, I would just go around like doing drugs, like sleeping with everyone yeah. and murder and murdering. Don't do people. that, right? And that's I'm not like, what people do. No, you, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't yeah. do that. You wouldn't. And and people who don't live Christian lives don't tend to do that. And people who, you know, People still care about their children. And, and, and in fact, yes. we have a lot of kind of biological hardwiring that helps us care about our children. Like it's it's actually quite natural yeah. to want the best for your kids. And well, and even if less... you go ahead, if you look evolutionarily, like 
people are like, well, why do you think it is that all societies agree that murder is wrong? You know, right. doesn't that say something about the, like a moral law? And I'm like, no, it means that when there's a society, when there's a society that thinks murdering is just fine, they don't survive. <laughs> so like, yeah. I mean, yeah, they would. I mean, Although, yeah, uh, mur- that, that's a little bit interesting. You, I don't know if that's true. Like you could imagine tribes that are really cool with murdering out group members doing really well. And in fact, that's what we do find. Oh, I was going to say that I think you do see that. You don't, you can't murder in group members. Those tribes wouldn't survive. Uh, But like there's really, really sad and clarifying data around like they surveyed Americans during a time when uh, things were tough with Iran, I think during Obama's um, Mm. presidency. And they asked them questions about nuclear weapons toward Iran and it's something like – I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but an insanely high percentage would prefer 1 million civilian Iranian deaths to save 20,000 American troops, something like that. If it saved – it was like basically redoing the kind of uh, yeah. you know Hiroshima, Japan. Nagasaki yeah. thing, right? Would you – to save 20,000 troops, would you kill a half a million or a million Iranian civilians? It's like 70 percent of Americans said yes. That yeah. is like, to me, fucking bonkers that you would kill 50 innocent people for every one military personnel who chose to be in the military and risk their life. So yeah. there's something would, really going on there. And I would also say, like, there are many, many, many decisions that have to be made in order before in order to even get to that. And you know what I mean? Obviously, America has gotten to that point before. I mean, we've dropped we dropped bet, two, two bombs. Yeah, on, but I on bet Japan. this would be pretty rec- replicable in other countries. I think it's I think it's just human psychology. I don't even think sure. it's particularly American. Sure, oh, I agree with you. I agree with yeah. you. But 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 people that bring up sort of this this universal sense that killing is wrong yeah. um, as evidence of like an absolute moral law, I'm just like, have you looked at the world? <laughs> Like, there's plenty of people that think that killing is fine. Um, Certain kinds of killing, but not really murder. So it's interesting. Yeah. Murder just means killing without justification. But justification is... It's premeditated killing without... Yeah, of course. Who determines what's justified. Right. Uh, uh, All societies would basically agree that, like, non-commensurate punishment for crime is unjust. Something You could find stuff that basically all humans agree on. So if we get out of that false binary of it's either Christ or it's all bullshit, we can bring in the idea of it's going to be discernment all the way down. So, yeah, other people are going to have pretty moral lives and and plenty of people are going to have more moral lives than a bunch of Christians that we know. That's true. But then as I'm discerning it, I remember things like Jesus saying in order to gain your life, you have to lose it, which sounds a hell of a lot like what you said. And I think back to your to the pygmy orphan story. And I think about pure and blameless religion is this caring for widows and orphans in their distress. Right. Yeah. So the, the question then for me becomes if I have to discern how I'm going to live my life. And if I can get rid of all these false binaries of it's either my in groups version of Christianity or everything else is horseshit. If I can get rid of that control for that. Well, do I have the kind of stuff within Christianity that are the type of resources I need to live this life, to live this moral life, this meaningful life. 
a transcendent life, or at least a life that is speckled with transcendence sufficiently to give mm. my life meaning. Um, I like and, that phrasing. Yeah, I, I I felt pretty good about that too as it came out. Speckled with transcendence because you don't, you don't want to be transcending constantly. You're then you're like tripping balls all the time. But enough transcendence, right? And I think well, yeah, if, if tran- transcendence is when you're elevated to an uh, to a state above the norm, right? And if the elevated state right. is the norm, then you're not transcending <laughs> anything. Right. Yeah, yeah. So for me, the, um, the question of to remain Christian or not, like, even if I continued to pray and whatever, to remain Christian is about are there resources here sufficient for the task at hand? And at yeah. the, this time in my life, I think, yeah, these resources mm-hmm. are sufficient. There's a lot of dross. There's a lot of chaff that has to be separated out from the wheat. But uh, yeah, this is where I'm at for now. And that's awesome. It, you know, so anyway, that's, that's kind of, uh, I didn't mean to give a testimony. <laughs> no, I love <laughs> a it. Statement I love, of faith. I, 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 this is a great conversation. I, it's funny in my post, I avoided using certain labels because I don't know what to do with them. So like Christian, I never said I'm not a Christian, but if, hmm. if, incidentally, not one person in the last two months has asked me, would I still call myself a Christian? But you said you don't believe in God. Didn't you say what you said? I said, I'm finding that I don't believe in God. I think most people would assume that that would include being any particular religion, which would include Christianity, Buddhist, Just Islam, fair. whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, Buddhists don't believe in God. Yeah, depending on who you talk to and depending on the type of Buddhism, right? I mean, Karen Armstrong, they leave it, they leave it, they leave it open. Yeah. Yeah. Zen Um, Buddhism, for instance, has very little doctrinal uh, beliefs at all. It's more of a way of being in the world. I shouldn't say that they don't believe in God. I I should say that they, they don't pin that down in a particular way. Yeah. Or I maybe mean, some certain, Buddhists certain... have like all kinds of deities and semi deities and stuff like that. Sure, very much sure. Theist. Zen Buddhism doesn't really have a deity. This is my weak understanding of comparative religion. Sure, yeah, there. yeah. I think that's that's true. That it's it's like from, in the West we do tend to talk about Buddhism as if it's one thing, and it does tend to be a collection of various beliefs. But yeah, I did say. I, I, I mean, at, at that point, I did say I'm finding that I don't believe in God. Words are tricky. Because words are tricky could be the title of could be the name of this whole podcast, not the yeah, episode. The whole well, words are tricky. Like could probably, just be called that. probably the way I should have said it was I'm finding the idea that there is no God more convincing than the idea that there is a God at the moment, which you could say is lacking a belief in God. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, but, it's a lot of people. It's, it's, it's one day that and one. I mean, for me, it's like. One or two days a week, that's true of me. And then five Dude, to six days a week. I agree. You know? I agree. Literally, like, I, I've thought about this the last few weeks. Like, okay, today, if someone asked me if I believe in God, today I would say no. But then another day, I might say yes. You know, and or, or another day, probably more accurately, what I would say is like, it depends what you mean by God. <laughs> that, you always have to. That's always the first question. And then you can answer it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, well, I mean, where I'm at right now it, it, is that. I believe that life is very mysterious and uh, there's a lot that I don't understand. And I feel, I mean, I feel like I'm learning so much so fast right now and all it's doing is exposing rapidly exposing how little I know. So it's like, that's the, it's that's like, the juice, man. That's the sweet spot. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, I feel like I'm exploring. I feel like I'm in this like pond. Right. And I'm exploring incredible amounts of this pond outside of what I've explored before. But, but all that's doing is exposing more and more pond 
And the amount of pond that it's being exposed is much greater and expanding more rapidly than my, than the section of it that I understand. Yes. So, oh gosh. Yeah. I used to, you know what I mean? Like I'm, oh, yeah. I'm learning, like I'm, yes. I'm learning more than I've ever learned more rapidly than I've ever learned it. But at the same time, the, the horizon of what I see, I don't know is expanding more rapidly than the horizon of what I'm understanding. <laughs> so I I've been talking too much, but this is the last thing I'll say. Uh, sure. when I was talking with Dustin Kensrew from thrice on his episode, mm-hmm. uh, which was about trusting our experience, I came up with an analogy for my own, what I've been going through, which is that I had been looking at a plate that had some cookies on it. We had some friends over and I realized that like what I had been told was that the plate was Christianity and everything in the world could fit on that plate. And then what I found as I got older and started questioning things was that actually there was a whole table and then there was a whole room of things outside the plate. And the way that he said it, that I have been chewing on since last fall, is making it so that it's not a plate. Christianity is not the thing on which everything fits. Christianity is a lens through which I see all that there is. And transitioning from Christianity contains it all to Christianity is a way of looking at it all. Yeah. And uh, I find that really I found that really helpful in it, continuing to to circle back to it. But so just to, to wrap up here, because I know we're out of time, I like to do a, a little inventory at the end. So let me sure. sum up how I, what I think we've figured out here. Sure. I think what we figured out is this, that the God that you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. Number one. Number two, though, through a decade or so of of doing work and thinking about more progressive theological options uh, and more pluralistic and whatever, I now I do believe in a bunch of other things about God that you do not currently believe about God, but that are theoretically on the table in the future. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, I think I'm leaving a lot of space open right now because of the immensity of what I know I don't know. That's the thing is that before I didn't know how much I didn't know. And now I'm increasing in awareness of what I know, but I'm much more rapidly increasing in awareness of what I don't know. And so I feel like what that's doing, what that's doing is it's creating this space of possibility where I'm going like, well, maybe. And and part of it is I want to explore that unknown space and that's good. And that'll probably occupy me the rest of my life. But I was going to say, like, but the big question is, like, how do I live my life in the meantime? That's like, where how I was going. I, yeah. Like, how do I live my life while I am occupied with this journey of trying to learn more? Because if I wait until I understand it all to, like, develop a, a mode of being, then I will never do it. And so, yeah. and so, yeah, I mean, to me, the guiding principles for me are service and compassion and if I can live a, a life that's guided by guided by compassion, I can't logically or reasonably or philosophically tell you why that works, but it seems to work. And it's a life that I feel like I'm, I'm growing in instead of away from like, like a, a curious, a curious side effect of this whole process for me has been that I feel motivated more than ever to engage in, in work to alleviate the suffering of other people. I, I, yeah. I feel like the idea of God was an excuse for me before. Whereas like if I see if I saw suffering and it bothered me, I could I had the benefit of going like, Well, God's got it, but I don't feel like I have that benefit now. I'm like, Well, if that suffering 
that I see is bothering me. I need to do something about it. And, and not in like a heavy, like it's, it's, I'm obligated to do it. It's that like, there's an opportunity for me to, to engage in serving something bigger than myself that can bring me joy and fulfillment and purpose and also leave, leave the world a better place and, and alleviate the, you know, suffering of someone else. And all of that is good, really good. It's beautiful. I mean, my personal take from the limited experience I have with you is that uh, you needed to lose that faith. I that, did. That was actually not a robust Christian faith, and it was not going to serve you well for the rest of your life. It hadn't been serving me. And yeah. and, and being free of it, honestly, like it, it's so freeing. Yeah. Um, I'm and, glad you and, don't believe in that God, John. I think too. that's good. And I'm, I'm, very exci- <laughs> I'm excited to see whatever comes next. I think it will be better than what was there before. I think it already is. Yeah. At least for me experientially in life. And, and if that ends up with me becoming some version of a Christian again, I'm not against that. Like I'm not bitter and mad and pissed off. I'm not like F you Christianity, like I'm out and I'll never see you again. I don't feel that way. I, I just, it's not like I can't engage with Christianity ever again. It's that I, I can't engage in bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Well, that thing you and said Christianity about... Is, Christianity is not all bullshit. Right. But, Clearly. But I was engaging in BS. Yeah. At, 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 I, had done, I had engaged in a lot of it, and, and I, I couldn't anymore. The thing you said about learning how much you don't know... I mean, if Socrates said, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know, uh, he's probably right. And my experience accords with that and including uh, working toward a doctorate in psychology, way more questions than answers. I I think it's safe to assume that those of us who really try to learn things in this world, we should assume that the percentage of the world that we are aware that we don't understand will always grow relative to the percentage of the world that we do feel like we understand. Yeah. it is back to certainty in a sense, or it's at least back to epistemology of what, what can we know if our, and how do we know what we know? Yep. And if what makes us a Christian is I know enough to know that Christianity is true, then I think we basically can't pursue that trajectory of, of education. And what we actually need is something that frankly, Catholics and Orthodox and other forms of Christianity tend to do better than Protestants, which is, my Christianity is a, the way that I am in the world. It's the way that I live. Mm. It is, you know, it is the rituals I perform. It is the prayers I say. It is the community I take part in. It is not the intellectual content of my beliefs, propositional claims about God that I hold to. Although there's some of that, of course, and different That's Catholics really feel interesting. more or less pressure to agree with the catechism or whatever, what have you. But ultimately, if it's about knowledge and we just keep learning more and more, with each thing that we learn, there's three things we don't, we know that we don't know. I mean, it just gets like when I was complicating the resurrection thing, it's like, it's so complicated. I can't, Yeah. I will have some opinion tomorrow. I'll have some opinion when I die. I'll never know for sure which of those opinions yeah. was right. I got to live a certain way in the meanwhile. So can Christianity speak to the way I live? That's the question. Well, and- for me. And here's here. This maybe some sums it up a, a little bit. What do you think speaks to what you truly believe more? What you say you believe, or what you live out? Yeah, what you do, right? And I would say what you do, and and most people would do. And so so then I would say, 
if there are a bunch of fundamental tenets of Christianity, and if, if those are things that you totally unrelated to Christianity, you want, you want to live your life that way for whatever reason, then is living your life in such a way, does that constitute belief in some, in some way? Because it feels like it kind of does. I think it kind of does. Like I, I, I went through this on a, at the the last 20 minutes of a very long episode called why I'm still a Christian. And we kind of took till the end to get to like my positive account uh, yeah. I was just kind of dealing with questions of pluralism and salvation and stuff. Sure. My buddy sure. was interviewing me. But at the end, I was like, look, and again here, I'm. it's at the very end. I need the Sermon on the Mount. Like, I need the Lord's Prayer. I need, I need, give us this day our daily bread as a lens through which to see my own massive wealth in a historical, historical yeah. context. Yes. Mm-hmm. I need Certainly. turn the other cheek. I need love your enemies. I need remove the plank from your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother's eye. I need pure and blameless religion is this caring for widows and orphans. I need lose your life that you will gain it. Like if I had been raised Muslim, I probably would have versions of this from the Hadith and the Quran that I would say, I need that. I don't have access to, to what I would, would happen if I was raised Muslim. I'm not actually that interested in that. I was raised Christian and I, I do find God through those teachings, trying to live those teachings out in, in a sense, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower in aspiration more than anything else. Mm. And I've got mm. some resources that the Christian tradition gives me toward that end, like prayer, like taking the Eucharist, like thinking about baptism, frankly, going to weddings and listening to people's wedding vows and considering my sacramental commitment to my wife in marriage. Right. That is a, yeah. ren- it's a, I, I sort of renew my marriage to her whenever we witness another wedding. So, you know, Christian community, uh, meals together. We have a small group that meets at our house. We talk through life and we eat together. These things are resources toward the aspiration of being more like Christ. And there is, there are just reams and barrels full of toxic biohazard horseshit to get through on the way to that. But as I said earlier, everything is discernment. Everything has reams of horseshit. If you just want to be, uh, as you were saying, a reductive physicalist, you're going to have reams of horseshit to deal with there too. I think That's to true. think, I think to think you don't is is naive. And so I'm just, I know how to get, I know somewhat how to get through the horseshit of my own tradition. So I'm going to stick in it yeah. and find the beautiful stuff. But if you need to take a break from it, or if you need to to not be in this tradition, man, I hope that God meets you in whatever way yeah. that makes sense inside or outside this tradition. Either way, I've had a great time talking with you about it. Thanks, man. I had one, one thought while you were saying that. Sure. Uh, everything you described is, is like you said, it's a way of being in the world. Right. And if the Bible lays out, you know, like if Jesus, the stories of Jesus lay out like a, a way of being in the world that you can follow or not, there's two ways to, well, there's probably more than two, but there's at least two ways to look at that. One is, you are obligated to live this way. So you better live this way or you're going to hell. Right. Yeah. That's, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, hey, hey this is a good way to be in the world. You're and, invited to live this way would be another yeah, way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's good for you now. It's good for you later. It's good for the people near you now. It's good for the people near you later. And the circle, the better you are at it, the circle of, of benefit grows. And looking at the teachings of Jesus that way, I, I, I look at that and I go like, well, 
I believe in that. And that's not nothing. And so I don't know what that makes me label wise. I wrestle with the God stuff and I wrestle with the Jesus stuff and I wrestle with the scripture stuff. But but everything that you just said, your way of being in the world that's coming from Jesus as an example, I'm in on all of that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not, I'm I'm not, I'm not ready for the Eucharist again yet. Okay. That's fine. Sure. (laughs) Well, and you know, that's interesting because people have really different experiences around the Eucharist. Like Mm -hmm. I remember being taught at some point only come to the Eucharist or communion once a month when we had it, like when you're pure of heart or something like that. Yes. Okay. So I didn't get that heavily, but I got it occasionally. I remember I remember that had become my kind of basic orientation toward it, like in junior high or something like that. But then pretty quickly, I found like Catholics who were advocating for an open table in mass that like, Mm. it's just a gift. Like, it's just God's grace. Like, we can't do anything to deserve it or be ready. One time I had a conversation with a, I think I've told this on the podcast, a priest, a local priest, and I told him that. I was going and that, and that a priest, a Jesuit priest had told me to start taking communion at mass. And I had taken it that morning, although I was not a Catholic and still I'm not a Catholic. And the guy was like, Oh no, like you, you don't want to do that. If you take it and you're not a Catholic, it's going to have like the opposite effect on you. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, so it's magic bread. And like you do, you know, like that's bonkers. Like, That is not what's going on here. And so I don't have that baggage with the Eucharist. And for me, the Eucharist is just like remembering the Lord's Supper. It's that self-sacrificial nature of Christ unto death that like as a Christian, I affirm is the foundational thing about God who created the world. That another way I've said it before is that self-sacrificial love is at the beating heart of the center of the universe, right? Hmm. That's, That's what I affirm as a Christian. I don't know that it is. But I'm yeah, going to live as if it feels right is. to you. Well, it, yeah. it feels right. It, it makes sense of certain experiences of mine. And it also seems like the best way for me to live. As yeah. if that kind of self-sacrificial love is at the center of things. There is something about, and I know this, this is a dangerous way to look at it because it can get a little wacky. But it's it sometimes, it, it, in addition to trying to ask, like, what is fundamentally true? Sometimes it's helpful to ask, what is what is helpful to believe and like even things, even things that we don't totally understand. Like for instance, like science doesn't understand quantum mechanics, but there's certain things about quantum mechanics that are reliably seem to be reliably true, even though we don't understand why they work. Even if it's on a probability curve or something. Yes. Right. Right. And so it's like, well, I mean, if they're reliably true and they work, then like we can rely on them in some way, even if we don't understand why it's true. There's a lot about that. I mean, the, the average person doesn't know how the internal combustion engine works, but you know, they know that it works. Yeah, it's reliable. And, right. and and when they put their foot on the gas, they know that they're going to go somewhere. I would say the and deeper so, you go into theology, the deeper you go in, especially into psychology, start trying to say, well, what's, what are the mechanisms here? It's very difficult to design the right experiment to show you what the mechanism is. Then someone else will try and replicate your experiment. They will shade it differently. You'll find out that only oh you had a really successful experiment. You've got a you have a point three correlation, which means that ten percent of the total thing you're looking at can be accounted for by the mechanism you used. 
that's a that's a really good finding and that's only 10%. Like yeah. and so what's the other 90? And then mm-hmm. what's beyond that? And 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 we're talking about all these language games that we use with religious language which is even harder to pin down than empirical studies are. And it's just like you will you will for sure die not knowing 99% of things in the world. That is a fact. So Yeah. What do you need to know? How much, how confident do you need to be so you can live your life? I mean, intellectual and theological humility are sort of like, it's two sides of the same coin, you know, virtue that I go for. Um, I love that. I love going deep on this stuff and looking for contradictions and you can, you can do work and theologians do real work. You know, it's not nothing, Uh, but we just, this is why things have to be held loosely because the world's just too big. It's too complex. This conversation may have gotten me to a place where I don't know about the labels of, you know, Christian or, or whatever, but it, it's gotten me to a place where I'm like, I do aspire to be more like Jesus in a, in a lot of ways. And I hadn't thought about it worded quite like that. So you did some work on me, Dan. Great, man. <laughs> Free of charge. Well, that's cool, man. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously very pleased to help in any kind of way, you know, and this is what I want to do as a therapist is like, uh, yeah. obviously talk a hell of a lot less, but help people, you know, understand their story. And I, not that I was psychoanalyzing you or anything. I certainly hey, this wasn't. Is, this has been, I mean, you can't not be, if you're studying psychology, every conversation. And, you know, no, you're, you're not that's not, not true. Be. No, that's actually, that's a, that is a, uh, a that's a myth. That's a myth about people who study psychology. I'm, I actually was not doing any, I was actually spending very little of my own energy thinking about what you must be experiencing or thinking about these things. I'm, oh, I was gotcha. just working with the ideas. Um, yeah. That's, that's kind of where I like to be well, anyway. Well, Hey, but, that was the, that was the most affordable therapy session I've ever had. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I appreciate it, man. And, um, I guess uh, you, you talked about this with the, on the bad Christian thing you did that you're not actually promoting anything right now, so there's nothing nope. for people to go unless nope. uh, they need video work or what's your what's the day job? Yeah, I, I mean, I do I do uh, video work for uh, about half my work is in the music business still, so it's like music videos, their videos, content for live shows. Not that those are happening right now, right? But then the other half is like corporate, you know, stuff which probably sounds boring, but I actually like, I I kind of enjoy shooting interviews like really, really well. Um, I mean, I'm not saying I do it really well. I I enjoy aspiring to do it continually better. Yeah. My my day job is ad music. So we, there's some overlap. Oh yeah. Yeah. What ad music, what, what platform? I work a lot with Marmoset music out of Portland. Oh yeah. I know Marmoset. Uh Yeah. I've been with, I've been with them since they were three or four employees, like nine, 10 years ago. Uh, They had a really, they had a really quirky Instagram ad uh about six months ago that i remember being like that's so portland yeah they're yeah they're very portland fantastic <laughs> company so anyway I, we share a little bit of the uh the paying the bills stuff yeah um, all right well i know cool. you gotta go that was a great chat man yeah. thank you so much man dude thanks for doing it man let me know when you post it uh and and i'll i'll you know share it on this has been an approach that has been unique in all the conversations that i've had and oh, cool. it's been uh, so it's something that I, I always, whenever there's like a, a, a different aspect to the conversation, I always want to share it on, on Instagram because it, you know, it's not covering the same ground that I've covered with other people. So well, I, I really appreciate that. I felt like, uh, I got into a flow today, You did, um, which is sometimes detrimental. Um, no. and I, it might've been no, time of day and the, and the diet Pepsi and I don't know, but I loved it. So sweet. Thanks man. Appreciate it.
So in the show notes, I've got that Bad Christian episode interview with John that I really enjoyed. I've got a link to that Karen Armstrong book, A History of God, that we both had read or I've read and John is reading. And also a link to John's creative site in case you are in that world and would like to hire him. Uh, I have a link to my own Instagram if you want to see copious pictures of our son Soren. And uh, thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation. He's available for more podcast editing work, and his email address is also in the show notes. You can join the Patreon for at least two uh, exclusive episodes per month, as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group. It's $5 a month, but there is a sliding scale if money is really that tight for you right now. You can email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com if that's you. To sign up, patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. There are links to that in the show notes as well. And we will see you guys next week, I believe, with former missionary Amy Peterson uh, about her fantastic book, Dangerous Territory. And we're also talking about the concept of short-term missions more broadly. All right. See you guys.